the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You ever wonder what your kids are learning in school? Oh, I don't necessarily mean things such as the history of the country and how to read and write and things of that sort. All important to be sure. But what are the other things that they're learning in school? You know what I mean, Mom and Dad? The other things? School's in session, and some things are taking place that perhaps are going to shock parents. It is incumbent, I think, on all of us to understand, to to help bridge the so-called generation gap and know what our kids are learning, how they're feeling, and ultimately how they're being influenced by both their peers and even by the educators. With some insights to help us all wake up to the realities of what kids are learning both in and outside of school, Andy Brainer joins us. He's a teen expert, author of an expose on teen sex and dating, what's really going on and how to talk about it, published by NAV Press. And Andy, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for having me on the show. Parents frequently certainly will focus on things like, are you getting your homework done? What do your grades look like? Things of this sort. All important issues, to be sure. And yet it's what's not on the official curricula sometimes that we ought to most be worried about. Right. We... uh we, I spent uh, two years uh, researching this book uh, in the hallways of the high schools across America and and actually came up with some pretty alarming uh, <laughs> results. Uh, I found that uh, there's a there's a there's an undercurrent of sexuality happening in our in our high schools today that is akin to the sexual revolution of the 60s but it's all being done kind of under the radar and so I would encourage parents uh, just like you said there's a lot of things we can see that we expect kids to learn from school, but it's the relationships that they're having uh, in the hallways of the high school, when school's over, on, on weekends, that, that, we sh- that we should really be concerned about. All right, here's a fact check, uh, reaching out to some of the FAQ that parents ought to be asking of their teens, or at least aware of. Uh, let's begin with the first point that you address, and that is that there is significantly more sexual activity going on than most parents are aware of. In fact, According to a CDC study, half of high school students have had sexual intercourse and 14 percent. I mean, you know, it's not far from being one out of every five have had relations, physical relations with four or more partners. And we're talking about kids still in high school. Right. I was in the school, um, and I won't mention the name of the school, but I was—I have a chance to go into some of these schools and, and do assemblies and talk to students about, you know, faith and, and what they're really thinking about faith and what they're thinking about life. And 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 I would—I uh, I commonly get a group of kids together just to ask about their dating relationships. And I and I just say, look, bottom line, you're not going to see me again in three days, so you know you can be honest with me, and I'm not going to go tell your parents what's going on. But tell me what's going on in the dating relationships in this high school. 
and as we're sitting around the table, uh, one of the one of the guys hop, popped piped in, and he he said, uh, "Andy, here at our school, it's just like we we just hook up with each other, you know, every day." And so, and, and hook up has a different meaning than maybe some parents might think that it is. They have a they have a, a location that they'll go to. And they'll literally engage in physical activity, and and when it's over, it's just kind of like they just kind of went and played basketball in the backyard. They <clears throat> they come back to school and they say, you know, they they give each other high fives, and wasn't that fun last night? And and then the next night they do the same thing over and again. And so each night we have teenagers that are out just hooking up with each other. And and and, and even worse, so not only is any sense of impropriety gone or shame or guilt uh, apparently just completely uh, cast aside. But then, isn't it so that at certain levels we see, Andy, the influence of so-called modern-day social media uh, that is helping exacerbate all of this? Because now, you know, not only are the kids are hooking up, and then they're bragging about it on Facebook or, or texting each other, if not with the gory details, even with photographs. Uh, with the gory details and photographs. Wow. It's, it's unbelievable. In fact, I'll get, I'll get emails from parents that, that sneak on their kid's computer, and they'll download the latest Skype conversation conversation that they're having and it would i mean it just makes you blush to think about the language that kids are using and the and the uh, just the explicitness of what's going on so we've gone from being concerned about our kids potentially being exposed to pornography in the seedy parts of town to now actually creating the pornography oh no doubt no doubt <laughs> And most parents, I mean, as much as you talk to teens, you also talk to their parents. What's the reaction? I mean, you're speaking upwards of, of 80,000, 100,000 teens every year. You have a lot of impact and, and opportunity to talk to the parents. When you when you share some of these details, much as we are here this afternoon, what's the reaction? I find that, that there's a... There's a there's a lot of parents who would would come and they'd say, obviously they'd be in the camp and say, oh, that's not my kid. My kid would never do that. My kid would never be involved in that. Uh, and then you have some parents that that say, okay, I see the issue. I see what you're doing now. What do you, what can we do to encourage our kids? And especially in the Christian communities, when I go in and start talking about dating and relationships, um, there are some honest parents that go, hey, look. Um, we need help. Uh, we need we need folks that can bridge the gap between the teen relationship and the parent relationship. Help us coach our kids. And so you, you know you kind of get both sides of the spectrum. But but I tend to focus on the ones that are going. All right, we we get it. We know our kids are not perfect. We know our kids could be involved in this. Teach me how to coach my kid to have a successful relationship in high school. A lot of parents feel overwhelmed by this, a sense of perhaps being out of control because of the number of counter-influences to what they're trying to teach their kids. I mean, I would assume parenting today is as it was when I was a kid, that most parents want to be able to set up an atmosphere in the household that, that establishes and then helps to encourage uh, certain standards and and a uh, standard for living, a moral code, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mine happened to, to, to come out of the church, but, you know, somehow some sort of a, a decent code of behavior that parents are not only having to compete with with um, the counterculture that is out there that's running contrarian to what they're trying to teach their kids and values in the home or, or in church and then on top of all of this I bet there's a huge frustration because just parents feel as if there's little they can do. Right, but I think um, 
it's easy sometimes for parents to just defer to all the other influences, but the research has shown us now when you ask kids about the most influential people in their life, in other words, what are the most, what are the most um, prominent voices in your life today, the research that's come out say parents still hold the number one spot in developing a worldview of that teenager. And, and to most parents, I can say, you know, how many times have we been driving down the road with our kids in the back seat and we say something, uh, you know, our kids are acting up or something, and we say, be quiet, stop touching each other, and all of a sudden this memory of you being in that car kind of comes through and you remember your mom or your dad saying those things, all to point to uh, the things that we learn about parenting often come from our parents. And so I often encourage parents to think about if you have the number one influence in your child's life, and secondly is friendships, peer relationships, and then third, the research comes out and says that the media holds the third position. So, so if you've still got the number one spot, then it's time for parents to start really parenting. It's, start, it's time for parents to really think about, you know, when is my kid on that computer and who are they talking to on that computer and who are they texting you know when they're at the dinner table and 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 start taking control and and be a parent in your house my goodness you're still mom and you're still dad and you have a responsibility to to rise up and raise your kids if you've just joined the conversation andy branner with us tonight teen expert author of an expose on teen sex and dating what's really going on and how to talk about it we'll come back to more of the insights and our conversation tonight if you want to join us with a comment or a question join in toll free numbers triple eight f-o-r-k-f-a-x that's triple eight three six seven five three two nine a timeout back with more as this edition of lifeline continues and the 1100 k-f-a-x and now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Andy Branner with me tonight, guest expert on teens, author of a new book called An Expose on Teen Sex and Dating, What's Really Going On and How to Talk About It. You know, one of the other big uh, shockers here, I think, for a lot of parents is the amount of alcohol and drug abuse going on. Uh, there was a Department of Health and Human Services substance abuse report that came out that found that order over a quarter of teens... 25% have engaged in uh, alcohol abuse under the age of 21, and 17% have gotten engaged in so-called binge drinking. There are folks listening to this program right now, Andy, who have never binged drank in their life, let alone doing it before the age of 18. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The uh, those are the old those are the old teenage adages, right? If we can only get them to stop drinking and stop smoking weed and stop having sex, then then everything will be fine. But but what we found is that those are just merely a veneer. All those issues, those classic teenage issues, are just uh, those are the, the surface issues of something deeper going on. And what we find those things to be true out here, we've got a little place called Kivu out in Colorado. We have over a thousand students every summer that come out. Here here to do adventures in Colorado and 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 during that time we get a chance to really live life with students and so what we find is that most students that are that are just trying to make their journey through high school are struggling with significance and and it might not just be a teen issue it could be I mean it's probably just all of us right we all want to feel valuable we all want to feel significant we all want to feel like we've got somebody that'll listen to us and 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 the more that I find kids that are engaged in activities as you mentioned the more I find somebody crying out going 
who in this world is going to value me? Mm. Who's going to be with me? And I, and I would say, and I say this every time I get in front of an audience, the number one issue in the teenage world today is not drinking, it's not sex, it's not drugs. The number one issue is loneliness. They're walking through life and they just feel all alone. You know, and the amazing thing to that message is that's kind of the description of the the human condition overall, isn't it? That's it. Yeah, that's it. And I I find the more that I can, when I bend down to look a student in the eye and and I give them the value that they deserve as being human, all of a sudden their eyes light up and they think, wow, somebody, somebody cares for me. And if they can do that at home, if a mom and a dad can do the parenting thing in a way that they really invest time in the things that teenagers like to do and they really focus on valuing their students sure there's disciplinary things surely there's correction things surely there are issues where we have to get in and mentor and coach but when I place value in my teenager he longs to be with me he wants to be with people that find him valuable and it goes back to the old age old adage that oftentimes the best thing that you can do to sort of inoculate your kids against all that the world has to offer out there is just to spend some time with them. And if you use the excuse, oh, but I'm putting in 60 hour work weeks to earn enough money so we can take the big vacations and live in the bigger house, I'm doing it all for my kids. In the end, you're going to find out that uh, uh, the opposite effect of what you were hoping for it comes to fruition. That's it. And I tell kids, I tell parents a lot, you know, when my kids got to the age where they could, they could do Legos and they started stacking Legos, uh, they would sit in the living room for hours just stacking these things and making these different concoctions of Lego buildings and stuff. And I got to tell you, Craig, I hate Legos. I just don't think that way. I have no patience. I don't, I don't, I can't put the six block with the four block with the two block. But it was the times that I sat in the living room and said, you know what? Even though I don't like doing this, I know you love it, and to, to spend time with you, I'm going to do the thing that you like to do. Those were the relationships where, where relationships started being made. That's when they started seeing, hey, Dad really cares about us because he wants to spend time doing what we want to do. So I encourage parents all, all the time, you know, if you can find that thing, if it's video games, <laughs> don't, don't just turn the, the Xbox off. Maybe sit down with your kid and say, hey, teach me how to do this. I'd love to do this with you. And get into their world. And once you get into their world, then these conversations about drinking and drugs and sex and relationships at school and academics and all the different things that they're involved in start just bubbling forth without you even really having to ask any real hard questions. You're not suggesting to try to be a peer or a friend. I mean, you can be a friend to your kids, but, you know, your, your kids will have plenty of friends in their lifetime. They're only going to have one mother and one father. Sure, sure, yeah. I think the friendship thing is 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 a different term maybe than I want to invest my time where you find time. And and I'm going to show value to you the way that you need to feel valued. And and if we can do that, man, it's, I'm telling you, it changes the way parents and teenagers interact together. Let's grab a couple of calls. Here we're going to go to Lori in San Jose. Lori, come on in with your comment or question for my guest tonight, Andy Brenner. Hi. Um, I... Um have taught high school and different age group students and um, I found that uh, you know sex is a big problem as far as you know student student interactions becoming more casual but does your book address um, uh, you know faculty uh, becoming involved 
in promoting sexuality, like uh, what Governor Brown did uh, and the legislature did as far as um, SB. I think it's SB forty eight. Forty eight, yeah, and you know, and 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 even the bigger equation there, Lori, is the fact that we've seen so much of almost substitute parenting going on in the classroom, and and some of it, I think, to be fair, Andy, a few parents kind of fell on their swords, didn't do their job, and then some, I think, well meaning but over enthusiastic folks at the the educational level said, well, look, if the parents are not going to teach their kids right from wrong and and uh, sex education, we'll take care of that for them. The problem is, you know, fast forward 40 years after so-called sex education made its way into the classroom, now all of a sudden it's moved from, you know, just good health information to suddenly uh, promoting an agenda. Andy? Right. So the book, to speak to your question directly, Lori, the book does not address the public school's responsibility or not responsibility. So I'll speak just off the cuff in, in, in the research that I found. It speaks more to what Craig was talking about. We see administrators all over the country who are standing up saying we need sex education in the classroom, and we find parents that are trying to opt out of those things in, in a way that they say, hey, it's our responsibility, we're going to teach them. Well, let me just give you a little uh, a little story. We had a guy that was sending his kid out to our place here in Colorado. Colorado, and he said, are you guys going to teach sexuality out there? And I said, well, yeah, we have a whole course on dating and sexuality as it relates to the Christian worldview, and what, what, is, it, what is God's intention for us in developing a relationship? Well, the man was well-intentioned on the other end of the phone, and he said, he said, well, I'd like my daughter to opt out of that class. And I said, well, that's great, because we don't want to do anything that offends parents. We want to make sure we're locking arms with parents. We want to do what you want to do. I said, could you tell me a little bit, like, why? Why don't you want her in that class? And he said, well, we're going to we're going to teach her those things at home and we just want to reserve that conversation to which I responded incredible that's incredible that's a great idea thanks for being good parents and then I said if you don't mind might I ask how old is your daughter when she's coming out here I'd just like to know you know where she's going to fit in where she's going to play how we can identify her he said well she's 15 years old (laughs) to that I said Brother, I don't mean to step on your toes, but that ship has already sailed. Yeah, you're, 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 you're going to have the conversation? Yeah, well, you should have been thinking about that probably 15, probably, you know, eight years ago. Our research shows that the average first sexual experience happens at 12 years old. Yep. There you go. And that, that is that is the stark reality that I think a lot of parents need to deal with. You know, even as we think about how we were parented, Andy, and wish to apply some of those lessons to how we in turn become parents and parent our own kids, we've got to realize this clock is moving faster than any of us realize. It's, it's fast, and that, that statistic of 12 years old means that 50% of them parents are younger than 12. And so we've got to, if we're going to stand up and take the, the mantle of teaching our kids about sexuality, then we've got to start those conversations, as awkward as they might seem, earlier and earlier. Some good insights. If they want to get copies of the book, Andy, it's available, I would imagine, through your website as well as Amazon.com. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Amazon.com, uh, AndyBrainer.com is my website, or you can just flip over to NavPress.com, uh, and you can go down to the teenage section, and it's highlighted there. All right. An expose on teen sex and dating, what's really going on, and how to talk about it. Information again on Andy's website, Andy Brainer, A-N-D-Y-B-R-A-N-E-R.com. Andy, thanks for the time and the insight. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You are driving home, no doubt, lots of hustle and bustle and traffic all around you at the moment, but I want you to kind of focus for a moment, if you would. 
Picture your most idyllic spot to escape to. Maybe it's a small mountain cabin overlooking sun-kissed lake by summer and snow-capped mountains by winter. Perhaps a Spanish-style home with red-tile roof looking out onto the Great Plains with wild horses roaming about. Yours could be a waterfront view from a private beach surrounded by seagulls, waterfowl of every description, and the occasional passing fisherman. Now imagine for a moment such a spot, not just a getaway or a dream spot that you would hope to someday visit, if not read about, but rather a place you call home. Susan Walters calls such a place home, and we find out why inside the pages of a new book called At the End of the Ferry. Susan, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I must tell you, for most readers, no doubt, they look at your book and they begin to get drawn into the pages of your day-to-day life experience and must think, you know, this is either the fulfillment of a retirement dream or a lottery (laughs) winning. (laughs) Oh, it's just pretty special. You have spent your life as a professional writer. You were in the real estate world for quite a number of years. You've been in the hustle and bustle of of big towns with big names that we would all recognize. And now you've been able to kind of unplug from all of that and in many respects, not just see nature for what it is, but I think at the same token, see God for who he is in all of this. And I have to wonder, as as your story tonight unfolds, first and foremost, people think about the quietness of the sea and watching the sunset and hearing the sound of the seagulls as they fly in and out and, and whatnot and have to wonder, well, wait a minute now, how in the madness of this day and age that we live in do you unplug from the clutter of the Internet, cell phone, text messages, and 55-inch widescreen TVs? Is this really possible? It really is possible, and it's truly a dream come true for me, and I was a big city girl for a long time, and we live in a small town. We still do big city things and have responsibilities, and it's a smell, a noise, a sound. It's really touching nature, and like you said, getting in touch and being still and being closer to to the Lord. It's very, very special. Your book, At the End of the Ferry, really walks us through day-to-day life in your home that has, in so many respects, almost served as a magnifying glass to the wonder of the simplicity of life. What's that experience like on a day-to-day basis? It is truly a joy, you know, when you have not, for 17 years, 17 summers, I had not gone barefoot. You know, I mean, you know, you get, like you said, into the hustle and bustle of life, and it's nice to take your eyes off of the computer screen and just focus on what's outside and just the random acts of, I would say, random and deliberate acts of the Lord and what He shows you through nature and wildlife and gardens and just a small northwest town. Give us a snapshot if you can. You're, you're up there in the Pacific Northwest, Puget Sound area for those that might be familiar. Maybe some people have had an opportunity to, to head up and visit the San Juan Islands. It's a spectacular part of the upper portion of the west coast of the United States. Mm. But your, your little hamlet there, tell us a bit about it. Paint the picture. Well, it is um, 90 feet of waterfront on the Puget Sound, and it is Woodlands Garden 
garden and just nature. I mean, we even had a bear in our yard, but you know, I mean, we're close to town, but you get the wildlife and the nature and we have eagles and they eat off of a stump in our yard and we have surprises every day. It's calming, it's peaceful. It's also wildlife. I mean, there's there's some wild things happening, too. So um, it's just fun taking in the oysters, the clams, the salmon. You know, we cook what we grow. We can get clams right off our beach. And it's just really a special, special place. Your place and the experiences that you share inside the pages of At the End of the Ferry strike me as as being celebratory of the the finer things in life, uh, being surprised by God, as you say, in so many delightful ways. And I, for the benefit of listeners, there are paragraphs where Susan talks about what happens when a seagull lands on your porch? Now, for most suburbanites, Susan, we wouldn't know it if a bus crashed through the living room. <laughs> and yet you were able to stop for a moment, freeze a snapshot in time and stop. And I would imagine just look at the wonder of the behavior. And I have to think for a moment, as you're surrounded by all of this beauty of God's creation, how can you but not stop and say, wow, God, what a wonderful, awesome God you are. It truly does make you be in awe. Just to be still and pay attention and have seeing eyes and touching, I feel very, very fortunate. I highly recommend people wherever they live just get in tune to what's what's out there around them it could be a yellow jacket that falls asleep in a foxglove you know um it could be a chipmunk you know the tree trunk traffic it's a joy to just pay attention to i just think these are gifts from god to us has this been a life-changing experience in the sense that getting away from the hustle and bustle of the noise and the traffic and being able to, again, realize that the big traffic jam is that the squirrel had to stop to let the snake slither by, and it took all of 10 minutes to transpire. I mean, I, I realize not all of us can have kind of the on Golden Pond experience. I, I remember that one scene, you probably recall if you saw the film with Henry Fonda and, and Catherine Hepburn when she talks about the calories are in bloom again. Such a wonderful opportunity. Was this kind of a life-changing experience for you then? It was. It was It was an absolute dream of mine. We had vacationed up here for years and years. Sometimes I would cry when we had to go home because I just, I loved it. I just saw so much that just spoke to my soul. I would say it definitely changed me in that I wasn't a high-profile job. I still had to work and make a living, and I still hit the wall on some things. I mean, even though I got to live in this small northwest town, but it definitely made me a more peaceful person, definitely brought me closer to the Lord, and I treasure this experience in this world. I just feel very, very fortunate and blessed. If you've just joined our conversation, Susan Walters with us tonight. We're talking about her delightful new book called At the End of the Ferry. It's an opportunity to really kind of escape from the madness and get reconnected with the simpler, finer things in life. And in many ways to recognize that even as we often in day-to-day living as we're heading to and from work and stopping the kids off at uh, soccer practice, going by and picking up uh, groceries at Safeway or Costco and getting home and paying the bills and the water heater is leaking in the garage and, you know, all of that stuff that we go through that at the end of the day, sometimes we need to make an intentional decision to disconnect from that, 
step away, as Susan suggests, maybe walk out into the backyard and just contemplate for a moment the honeybee busying its work around the blossom of a tree and recognizing the interdependence that those two have with each other, that the tree does not bring forth fruit save the pollinization job done by the honeybee, and that, in a sense, the life is of, of that fruit tree is dependent upon the honeybee as much as we, oftentimes not aware of God's presence, but nevertheless must depend on his presence for very life itself, our very breath every single day. To pause for a moment and ponder the wonder of the ability to inhale and exhale, and the joy that that brings. All inside the pages of this new book, and we're going to talk more about life at the end of the ferry with Susan Walters as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Truth be told, I could just sit and listen to that for the balance of my life and never complain. Susan Walters getting just such an experience detailed inside the pages of At the End of the Ferry. The book, by the way, is available on the web. You can check it out at christianreading.com forward slash S Walters, W-A-L-T-E-R-S. Or you can order the book by calling toll free 866-909-2665. That's 866-909-2665. As we move back to your story, Susan, I would imagine there must be times when there's this sense of God sort of through nature vigorously shouting, I'm here, I made all this, and I love you. Do you feel like that at times? (laughs) Absolutely. It's pretty incredible. And it's hard to describe, but you you know it in your heart, and you would never want to give it up. And by the way, Craig, I have your constant comment ready with two lumps of sugar and some lemon. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) I'll be right there. (laughs) It is definitely showing me how God is omnipresent. He's there. He's there. He's in nature. It gives you a peacefulness, and it allows you to be still and know that He is God. It's um, really, really a treasure. When you walk out on your front porch and you're surveying and kind of taking in everything around you, do you have time, Susan, when you wonder, how can an atheist be an atheist? And I ask that huh. question because you, you look at all of this, and, and to me, in so many ways, it shouts God's glory and God's presence. Absolutely. We had a butterfly bush and never had one of those before, and the, the spider ate the butterfly. You see these things and you say, this just can't happen, just man didn't do this, you know? And it's really more than you can comprehend, and sometimes I don't have the words for it, but that's why I journaled it. I thought, I have to tell this story. Every day I have to write down, because every day the Lord is showing me something that is so spectacular and so miraculous, and that only He could do. And... It's definitely brought me closer to him. What about the town, too? I would imagine as much as this has been kind of a life-changing experience for you to turn off the, the din of the madness and allow God to have his way. Are people different, too? Do you see it affected in the lives of people around you oh, as well? absolutely. And they love to talk about nature. They love to talk about wildlife. If they saw a great blue heron nest or they saw an osprey get kicked out of a nest because the eagle wanted it, you know, they'll, they talk about nature. They talk about wildlife. It's just very common. It's just... 
very casual. Um, the people no, no, are, you're not going to tell me people do things like bake cookies and rolls and drink <laughs> and piping hot over to your house, are you? Absolutely. You know, very giving, very into each other and neighborly. And they bring me bouquets of flowers they grew in their garden. You know, I bake um, homemade cinnamon rolls and the neighbors know about those. And they know about my granola chocolate chip cookies. And we um, share things or blueberries or raspberries. You know, when it's the season, we take them to each other. And it is a fun small town. It's special people. It's um, Santa Claus rides on the fire truck through the neighborhood and throws candy at the kids, you know, <laughs> at Christmas time. And it has a lot of uh, very, very special things. It must do a lot in terms of renewing your sense of hope for this country, too. Yeah, it does. It definitely does. It's uh, people care about each other. You know, these people care. They get involved. They're not out in the boonies or anything like that. I mean, we're a half-hour ferry boat ride from Seattle, so we're right near the city. They know their neighbors. We get together as neighbors. We'll have um, dinners where we go one house to the other, and we care about what's going on in the world, and we care about what's going on in our town. Kind of see this this circle happening here where you get away from the madness, the outdoor grows bigger, and as it does so, it ends up amplifying the voice of God. Now you get closer in your relationship with Him, and then after a season, the outdoor gets smaller, and friends and people and the things in life that really matter get bigger, do they? It's definitely about values. It's definitely about loving your neighbor as yourself, to treasure one another and care about one another, and then then you care about the bigger picture, too. So many of the chapters, and I'll mention to listeners, this is an easy read. It's a delightful read. It's one of those reads where you pick it up over the cup of coffee or tea or two or three. Uh, you, <laughs> you really fly through page by page, put it down, and then set it aside for a day or two, and then come back and say, you know, I need to get away again. And you pick up the book, and you start, and every chapter leads you into something new. I've read the book through, and then in preparation for our conversation today, started to go through it again. And I was struck, mm-hmm. you talk in there one point, I think it's somewhere along the month of August or, or September, it's, it's getting into the fall season, and you talk about a squirrel. And I thought, what an escape for those of us in the big city, where the biggest thief in the neighborhood doesn't have a rap sheet a mile high, but rather, in your case, has a, a pile of acorns a mile high, you know? This squirrel actually took the tomatoes I was growing and dried them up on our rooftop, you know, to eat them. You know, so, you know I, I don't know. It's it's just fun seeing uh, nature do its thing. It is a mental vacation, definitely. And, in fact, an attorney friend from Seattle told me that it's really kind of caused him to just, you know, stop and pay more attention to what's going on you know, around. And, and but, when friends and family come in from the big town, Seattle, to visit, are they astonished after a a while there at your home, Susan, that that flowers have names? <laughs> well, they really do have names. I mean, that, that came from the nursery with that name, you know. I mean, they love to come here. Even my brother and my four nephews and nieces and his wife live in Seattle, and they love to come over here. It's a different world. It is a slower world. It's a beautiful world. I get calls from North Carolina relatives and friends from Tennessee from asking to come visit and they love it. It's it's refreshing. It's very special. I feel very, very blessed. I, just hearing you describe it, I, I can 
smell mulling spices <laughs> and the apple cider on the stove. <laughs> You're right. And you and you replaced that stove. I understand. I understand that you had a little visit from the fire department. The old uh, <laughs> yeah. oil stove finally finally gave up the ghost, so to speak. You still have you know you you, you talked about water heater leaking, things like that. You know you still have real life things happen. And yeah, the fire department came and that old stove had to go. Your heating system up here, by the way, is really special. You know, wood burning or a little potbelly stoves. One of the things men that have read my book like is the story about the egg man that we go to an egg ranch to get our eggs and a lot of people sell things honey. So we go to their house and get our honey or we go, of course, farmer's markets, which you guys have down there too. But this egg man, he lives down this windy road past two ponds and it's always something exciting in those ponds, Siberian snow geese or waterfowl or... Today I, I saw, I couldn't tell if it was a coyote or a fox, actually, but this egg man, and he's got an old refrigerator, an outbuilding, and it functions as just an old refrigerator, and we just go help ourselves, and, and we went down there, and we got our eggs, and the dormer window of this old brick house opened up upstairs, and I see this man in his plaid pajamas leaning out the window, and he said, are there any eggs? Are we out of eggs? And we said, no, we got them, and he kind of laughed. I think he went back to bed, and we didn't realize it was before 6 in the morning. I had been writing all morning, early morning and night, and didn't realize the time it was. And we just have experiences like that. Well, the fact that you can inter- interact with people in that kind of a fashion, you know, kind of pays tribute to, to an older and simpler time in America, a time that most of us thought had kind of slipped through our fingers like the, the sands going through the hourglass. And yet, what a delight and relief to know that, that places like this still exist, and they still exist here in America. And people like Susan Walters are able to write about those experiences and share them then with all of us. And and I think in many respects, beyond just... Susan, your reflection of life on the Puget Sound and and the ability to hear and see God in in so many ways maybe is not so obvious to the person in the, you know, uh, traffic lines, smog-clogged city streets that we have in in the urban areas. It's been for you, I would imagine, an opportunity to almost kind of evangelize the word that God is still alive and well and his creation all about us shouts his glory. Absolutely. Definitely a simpler life and definitely values that I think that loving him and loving our neighbor as ourselves that's the greatest command and we're, we're really able to do that. And people see it. Katie, who wrote on the back of my book, is a young woman I've been mentoring and she... It's really, you know, changed her life. She knew the Lord, but she really wants to walk closer with Him, and she's got three little boys, and she's she's a, actually a meteorologist in Phoenix, Arizona, and it definitely has an impact. It does. It overflows. It definitely overflows. That's my hope, that the book will bring joy to people, help them to see that even in the tough times, and there are tough times right now in the economy, and people are losing their homes and things, and that it will really bring them closer to the Lord and um, help them to see what what's really valuable. And, you know, as you point out, oftentimes the, the greatness of the wonder of God's love for us is not in the castles built by man, but might be as simple as stepping out in the backyard and looking at the interaction between, uh, you know, the bee and the tree, as I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and just be able to witness God's love love for us firsthand in things that we oftentimes look right past, don't we? Absolutely. Just the peacefulness of mind and soul. And I I know in quietness and confidence shall be your strength is one of my favorite verses. And I just think um, 
to have a quiet and peaceable life is very rich, and it doesn't have to be money or riches, and it can be a pot of petunias on your little patio. For all of us that would like to be able to get away and to reconnect with God, I think this, in, in very simple ways, accomplishes that. The book, again, is called At the End of the Ferry, and you can get more information about ordering it by calling 866-909-2665. Again, 866-909-2665, or online, as I say, at christianreading.com forward slash S. Walters. Now, Many in the audience will know your husband, and I'm and I'm fearful to let the cat out of the bag, only because the phone will be ringing off the hook with reservation requests. <laughs> so uh, we sure appreciate, though, Susan, you taking some time to uh, share your story and your experiences with our listeners here tonight in Northern California, and most delightfully to, in a sense, uh, open your heart and your lives and your home and the bounty of God's created world there in the Pacific Northwest uh, inside the new book, and I just urge folks you're looking to get away boy here's an easy way to do it uh, that'll get you away and get you back to god at the end of the ferry and susan walters thanks so much for the time susan thank you craig so much take care always a delight take care now and again uh, remind you the book newly published by zulon you can get it online at christianreading.com forward slash s walters at the end of the ferry Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flint. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.